Picture if someone uh, came to your house uh, one morning when you were getting ready to leave for work and they towed your car away. And so you went to protest and they said, no, it's been sold to someone else. And you say, well, how can that be possible? They said, well, someone really wanted it. And so they, they gave uh, one of the police officers a certain amount of money. And so he decided that he was going to let the tow company haul it away and, and give it to this other person. That's a fairly minor example. And we say, well, nothing like that would ever happen. But in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, something much greater in terms of a miscarriage of justice takes place. Someone who is falsely accused, imprisoned for a long period of time, denied his freedom, offered the opportunity to go and stand trial before the very people who are trying, in the, in the presence of the very people who are trying to kill him. What would your attitude be toward God in that sort of a circumstance? God, you've made a mistake. God, I can't trust you anymore. God, your plan has gone astray. Look at the beginning of our passage this morning. Start at the end of verse 27 of chapter 24. After two years had passed. We might sort of gloss over that when we're reading this passage. After two years had passed. Paul's been in prison under false accusation now for two years. Why? Wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. We have in Felix this strange uh, combination of curiosity about Christianity, perhaps some measure of seemingly genuine conviction because he said in verse 25 of chapter 24 that he became frightened. But he keeps, he keeps bringing Paul back because he wants to hear the message that he's saying but he doesn't do the right thing and free him. Because there's been a number of times where there is a recognition that Paul hasn't done anything wrong. He's not in solitary confinement. He's not in the regular prison. He's in sort of a house arrest, protective custody for two years. He's not being treated like a normal prisoner because he doesn't deserve to be a prisoner, but they won't come out and actually do what they ought to do and free him. Lysias said he wasn't guilty. Festus or uh, Felix recognizes that he's not guilty, but he wishes to maintain a certain stature among the Jews, and so he continues this injustice. So now Felix has been succeeded by Portius Festus, and generally one of the practices of a new Roman official of a particular region was to sort of clean up any pending cases, any issues that the previous person had left. So now Paul's going to be freed, right? Let's look at the passage. Three days later, Festus went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the leading men brought charges against Paul. And they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. So let's think about this. 
Paul's been in prison for two years. You would think that the vendetta might have been given up by this point, right? We're not going to be able to do what we want to do. They're doing the exact same thing that they had tried to do back in chapter 23, which was to plot to assassinate Paul. They still hated him that much. So they come to the Roman official and they say, you know what, it would be, uh, it would be more appropriate for Paul to be tried in Jerusalem. You've seen this on maybe a, uh, a legal show on TV. Let's, let's move the accused to this place because then he can really get a fair trial. Was Paul going to get a fair trial in the place where people keep trying to kill him? No. Why did they want to move him? Ultimately, it wasn't even just uh, so that they could have a higher likelihood of seeing him convicted. They were just going to get rid of him on the way. Festus, his response in verses 4 and 5 was a very political answer in that he did not grant their request, but he did grant them a hearing. You guys come, make your accusations against him again, and I'll listen to them. Again, there was no grounds for, uh, for him to do this. He should have just let Paul go because his predecessor had had no reason to leave Paul in prison that long. And yet he continues this, this charade in allowing the Jews to present their charges against Paul once again. Now, there's disagreement between different people who look at this passage about whether he was aware of the previous plot, and maybe that played a factor in him not sending Paul down to Jerusalem. But whether he did or not, there was no grounds for him to keep holding Paul. The accusations were being brought by people in a way that if he had reviewed the case at all, he would see had no basis. So we're going to see that emphasized again here in chapter 25. But he allows this to continue. Verse 6, this is what we read together. He goes down to Caesarea, takes his seat on the tribunal, and ordered Paul to be brought. The Jews come down from Jerusalem, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Luke keeps highlighting this, chapter 24, verse 13. Nor can they prove the charges. Or verse uh, 18, there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present if they should have anything against me to make accusation. This was back in chapter 24. And it is clear that those charges still cannot be proved. There's no basis in this. Paul is unjustly imprisoned, falsely accused, innocent of the matters that he is being held for. Paul says in his own defense, very simply, verse 8, I've committed no offense against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. He's responding to the accusations of the Jews, but he's also undermining their one reason that the Romans might have a basis for holding him is if he had spoken out against Caesar and was trying to stir up a riot or something like that. And so he's saying to both groups who are present, I haven't done what you're saying, I haven't done what you would be concerned about, you shouldn't keep holding me. We see in verse 9, that same phrase we saw in verse 27, wishing to do the Jews a favor. The corruption of the Roman officials in these passages is largely not due to um, it's, it doesn't seem to be due to like a maliciousness a necessarily willing to do Paul harm. It's just that they're more concerned about what the Jews would be pleased with 
and maintaining some sort of peaceful relationship with them, they're more concerned about that than they are about accomplishing justice. So Festus asks, do you want to go up to Jerusalem and stay in trial? He recognizes what he's asking is unreasonable, and it's almost as though he's coming to Paul and saying, do you want to do this or not? Which is a strange sort of posture for a Roman official to be taking toward his prisoner. And Paul just finally comes out and says bluntly, not, I think, disrespectfully, not necessarily out of frustration, but simply because he recognizes, if I go to Jerusalem, I am going to die unless God miraculously intervenes. So Paul says, essentially, do your job. I'm in the place where I ought to be tried. I'm a Roman citizen. The Jews have no basis of accusing me. They have no power to free me or to, let, or to keep me held here. That's up to you. Man up, do your job, decide the case one way or the other. If I've done wrong and deserve to die, I don't refuse to do it. But clearly that's not the case. And essentially because he had no other recourse, Paul appeals to Caesar. Now some people say, well, Paul, if you had never gone down to Jerusalem, you wouldn't be in the point of having to appeal to Caesar. Or some people say, well, appealing to Caesar was a bad idea because the Roman emperor at this time was Nero. But Nero started out ruling the Roman Empire without all of the, uh, the craziness and the bloodthirstiness that he showed later in his reigns. And so this was not an unreasonable thing for Paul to do. This was just simply his last court of appeal as a Roman citizen. And so that's, he took that option. So Festus says, all right, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you'll go. He's probably breathing a sigh of relief. I don't have to sort this out. It's out of my hands. I just have to keep him safe until he gets to Rome. King Agrippa and Bernice come down to Caesarea and pay their respects to Festus. Agrippa was the, Ro the um, Jewish leader whom the Romans recognized as a sort of a king ruling over the region. There was the Roman official who was really the one ruling over it. But then there were these Jewish kings that had some measure of responsibility and some uh, degree of uh, keeping the peace in the particular province over which they were appointed. He didn't rule over as large of a territory as his, I believe, grandfather Herod Agrippa did, but he still had a fair amount of influence. Uh, Bernice was his sister. There's some question of whether there was an appropriate relationship between the two of them, and Certainly her later uh, behavior, according to history, was not um, reputable. But at this point, they're just traveling. They're coming and greeting the new Roman official. They're spending a long time there. There's this, um, there's this interesting dynamic between the Roman officials and the Jewish leaders and just sort of a, behind their backs, the Jewish leaders hated the Roman officials, but face-to-face, -face, they sort of had to, you know, make a good impression and, and be friendly, and, and people like Agrippa, who were sort of bridging the gap, probably were closer to Rome than they were to their own people. And so Festus brings Paul's case before the king, not as a, not as though Agrippa had the authority to decide it, but maybe he thought, well, Agrippa has some Jewish background. Maybe he can give me some advice about this case. So he, he lays out this whole thing. There's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. 
When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders brought charges asking for a sentence of condemnation. I answered, it's not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they assembled here, I did not delay, but on my... On the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they brought charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but simply some points of disagreement with them about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Festus has an interesting way of presenting the events that have just taken place, right? He's painting himself as the hero rather than as someone who doesn't want to do his job and is trying to avoid it at all costs. We've probably all experienced this. Your parents ask you to clean your room. So you walk in there, and you look for whatever is immediately obvious, and you throw it in the corner, and you come out and say, my room is clean. You haven't really done your job. Or you come up with an excuse. You know what? I, uh, I need to unload the dishwasher first, Mom. That actually hasn't ever happened that I can recall. But, you know... We look for excuses not to do the things that we're supposed to do. And then sometimes we act surprised when they haven't gotten done. You know, I, I, I just didn't know what to do. He knew what he needed to do. He needed to let Paul go because there was no basis for holding him. And he's waffling on his responsibility because he doesn't want to offend the Jews. And he doesn't want to let a Roman citizen get killed because that looks bad on his record. So what is he supposed to do? He just sort of goes back and forth. So... So let's ask this guy over here. Maybe he can give me a way out of this predicament that I've created for myself. When it says that they had points of disagreement with him about their own religion, about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive, I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. He should have said, let him go. He's not being held because he's done any crime against Rome, so I have no jurisdiction I should let him go. Whether he had done anything against the Jews was really not Festus's concern. But he keeps dragging this out. And so then Paul is brought in. Festus says, Here's the man whom, about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. Uh, you wonder where he got that from. Because it's not in the first part of this chapter. Did he read some sort of account that Felix had left? Because that is what the Jews said about him, but that had happened two years prior. And he's also exaggerating a bit, whom all the people of the Jews appealed that he should not live any longer. There was a certain small, very vocal group of the Jewish leadership that wanted Paul dead. The rest of the people were merely following their example and joining in the riot that they stirred up. So again, this is not accurate either. Verse 25, when I found he'd committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Well, that was, again, the thing that he had to do. It's not like he had a choice in the matter. He's painting himself as being somewhat noble for having done this, but it was his job. He had to do this. 
And so then he says, well, but, but the reason I want you to hear him, Agrippa, which we'll look at next week, the reason I want you to hear him is so that I have something to write the emperor about the reason that I'm sending him to him, because he doesn't want to send people to the emperor on a frivolous charge. So let's have some good reason to send him to the emperor, and you can help me write up the charges in such a way that it will be found acceptable so I don't lose my job right after I've just gotten it. Verse 27, it seems absurd in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Why weren't there charges to send against him? Because there was no basis for what was taking place, and the reason that you're in this situation is because you haven't done your job in the first place. So we go through this passage, and we see a continuation of the injustice that had already been committed against Paul being continued by the next Roman official being joined in by the Jews who still very much strongly hate Paul and being assisted by the Jewish ruler Agrippa who again should have had the best interest of his own people in mind but he was trying to uh, get in good with the Romans just like they were trying to get in good with the Jews and all of this together results in Paul's continued imprisonment now he's heading to Rome and there's uncertainty about what his fate will be Going back to the example from the beginning that was somewhat silly, but perhaps served to illustrate the point a little bit. If someone came, took your stuff, said we got rid of it, and the reason was a bribe or something along those sorts of lines, you would be offended. You would be frustrated. You'd say, what's the point of this? And the question that you would have to ask yourself, and the question I think Paul had to ask himself is, can I still serve God in this situation? And what does that look like? And is God's purpose still being accomplished? And what does that look like? And the answer to the first question is, can you still serve God in a situation when injustice is committed against you? The answer is yes. Peter says that very clearly in his epistles. We see the example of it here in the way that Paul responds. We can serve God even when we are treated unjustly. In fact, we must continue to serve God even when we are treated unjustly if we wish to follow in Christ's example and bear the testimony of the name that we profess. I don't know what injustice you may have faced throughout your life. I don't know what injustice you may yet face in your life. But when that point comes, or when it did come, Looking back on it, anticipating it, is your response, I can still serve God obediently in the midst of this situation? Because our natural tendency would be to say, this isn't fair, God didn't do right by me, and to complain, and to say, you know what, now I have an excuse to sin because I followed God faithfully and now he didn't keep his end of the bargain, so I'm going to do whatever I want to do. These are the sorts of rationalizations that might go through our mind if we're in a situation like Paul. But if your faith fails in the moments when it feels that you have been treated unjustly by God or by someone else, is your faith real? The other question we have to ask ourselves is, did God fail? 
What did Paul tell, what did God tell Paul was going to take place in his life? You will bear the gospel to the Gentiles. You will suffer. You will witness of me before kings and rulers. Kind of like in Acts 2, when the injustice of Pilate led to the crucifixion of Christ, Pilate could have stopped it. He's the one who ordered the soldiers to nail Christ to the cross. And so in that degree, he held responsibility for what took place. He could have stopped it. Felix and Festus could have stopped what was happening to Paul. We have this amazing mystery, I guess we could say, that the sinfulness of men can unintentionally accomplish the will of God. God is not sinning by using these circumstances to accomplish his purpose. God is not saying that their sin is okay. He said, by wicked hands they nailed Christ to the cross. Luke makes it very clear that these Roman officials are not behaving according to the process of justice. And yet, God's purpose does prevail. How do we know that? Because Paul's going to get on a boat to Rome. And he's going to get to the place where God intended him to go. And God is going to keep his promise to Paul. We saw this earlier in the book of Acts. We also saw it in Acts 23, verse 11. The Lord said, Take courage, as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. The course of our lives is not laid out as specifically and as clearly as Paul's life was. Paul's life was laid out as, here's what it's going to look like. But we do know in general terms what our lives will look like as believers. And sometimes we question whether God will really accomplish that or not. Philippians 1 says, the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you face a battle and a struggle with sin and you say, you know what? I don't think God's still working in my life. Do you believe God's promise or not? Or God says to the early church and indirectly to us, if you follow me, you will face difficulty. And then difficulty comes and sometimes we're tempted to throw up our hands and say, I didn't sign up for this. Do you believe God's promise? Or God says, go be my ambassador, share my truth, and some will believe, and it will be through my power. Again, do we have confidence that God is going to keep his promise, that he intends to save people, that he intends to make us holy, that suffering may be part of that process, that holiness is going to be accomplished in his glory in all of these things? Do we believe what God has said about this, that God's will will prevail regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in? I think the life of Paul teaches us, not that we'll go through the exact same circumstance, not that hopefully we'll see the same sort of government corruption that it, we see in the officials from Rome, in the injustice, the false witnessing of the Jews in this passage. We may never say something specifically like that, but we will face circumstances that cause us to question, can I live for God right now, and is God going to keep his promises, is will going to happen? 
And we need to be thinking about that now before we get to that point so that we can have a proper response. Paul didn't get to the point of continue to trust in God for the two years that he's falsely imprisoned and then for the two years at the end of Acts that he's imprisoned again and faithfully ministering throughout that time. He didn't get to that point overnight. He had been faithfully serving God for a number of years leading up to this. So be ready, respond rightly, and trust that God can and will accomplish your sanctification, his glory, and that this is all part of the plan that he is carrying out. And that can and does give us confidence in these sorts of circumstances. People around us fail regularly out of deliberate sin, out of unintentional incompetence. And if we have our trust in people always doing the right thing, we're going to be disappointed. But our trust is not in people doing the right thing. Our trust is in God helping us to do the right thing because that's really the only thing that we can control and in trusting that God's going to continue to carry out his plan even in this sort of a circumstance like Paul faced. Believe this. Get ready for those sorts of circumstances now. Honor God in them and rest in the fact that God is stronger than men and will prevail. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be in control of our lives. We want to be able to say what's going to happen tomorrow and to change it if it's not something that we like and to fix every problem that comes up and to see everything work out the way that it's supposed to work out. We want the stories to have happy endings. We want the um, we want to be in charge, but we're not. But you are, so we have to ask ourselves, do I trust the God who is in charge even when I'm not? Or have I put all my hope and trust in the people around me such that when I realize that they can't sort things out for me, they can't be the ones that help me out of this, that I'm not ready to turn to the one who actually can and will work things out according to his plan and purpose? We can do this with our view of fixing problems in our society through the political process. We can do this by expecting people to live up to our expectations in the context of the church. We can do this by thinking that it is the job of our husband, our wife, our kids, or whoever else is close and dear to us to make things the way that we want them to be. Lord, help us to see that that is not the way that you want us to live, rather to see that ultimately our confidence, our trust, and our hope can only be in you. You will do what you have said you will do in our lives. We must do all that you have called us to do in obedience. 
And in doing so, you will receive honor. We will glorify you, and your plan will move forward. Lord, help us to recognize these things. Help them to encourage us this week. Help them to affect the way that we speak to others. Our measure of joy in the ups and downs of life. Lord, to recognize that you are God no matter what is going on around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.